The Adventures of Elizabeth Crown presents The Girl in the Picture, Episode 3. You're a sight for sore eyes, said Charlie into the mirror. He cleared his throat, squared his shoulders, and said it again. You're a sight for sore eyes. He said the words over and over, each time in a different tone. High, low, peppy, weary, and everything in between. None of it sounded right. None of it ever sounded right. He tossed the script on the vanity and raked his fingers through his hair. The problem always came down to this. How do you say the words knowing that no one will ever hear them? The movie would show only the shape of his mouth, then a title card. Sometimes he wondered why he was handed a script at all. There was a knock at the door, just as he'd expected. Sooner or later, that knock would come, and he'd have to swallow down his pride. He fastened suspenders over his undershirt and sauntered to the door. He pulled the handle, and there she was, Elizabeth, freshly primped. Black dress, cloche hat, strained smile, just as he'd imagined. She also clutched a paper bag. Danish, she said. Charlie shut his eyes, defeated. He could never say no to a Danish. For all his tough guy roles, his brooding mean, Charlie had an insatiable sweet tooth. Well, he murmured, they're best with coffee, so you might as well come in. Thought you'd never ask, chirped Elizabeth, pushing past him. Charlie poured coffee. The confections were unveiled. They sipped and ate at the same table, for the first time in a decade. He focused his eyes on that flaky crust, that crosshatch of frosting, that perfect nucleus of candied fruit. This was their father's favorite treat to bring home when he wanted to spoil them. The memory tasted almost as good as the Danish itself. But for once, Charlie couldn't bear his own silence. Sorry about last night, he said. I... I think I was tuckered out. I'm sure, said Elizabeth. Hard work rescuing damsels in distress. He cracked a smile. Lots of hurry up and wait, that's for sure. I like it, though, making movies. What do you like about it? Charlie shrugged. I don't know. I get to pretend I'm someone else? He hadn't meant to say that. He'd never really thought it in so many words. But now the sentiment was spoken, too late to take back. Elizabeth's face soured with concern, maybe even pity. Just what he needed, his sister worrying about him, wondering if he was happy, nagging him about every little thought and feeling. Do you remember, she said, that pageant we did? Charlie felt his eyes widen. You mean the Christmas one? Elizabeth chuckled to herself. That one year Mother decided we should go to church. Holy cow, 
Charlie exhaled loudly. I just about forgot about that. We were all part of it. Vicky helped with the costumes, and you played Joseph. Charlie winced. But where were you? I, said Elizabeth, was the donkey. I'll be damned, Charlie cried. You were the donkey. It's a very important job, Elizabeth mugged. Someone has to carry the baby Jesus. But didn't you drop him? Didn't he slide off your back? Just one night. We only played three nights. It's not like it was a real baby. Now that right there, said Charlie, with suddenly bright eyes, is sacrilege. Don't you tell Pastor Hayden that the baby Jesus isn't real. He worked real hard on that play. And they burst into laughter. Waves of laughter. A bellowing, cleansing, impossible laughter, the likes of which they hadn't felt or imagined together in years. Elizabeth tried to sip from her mug, but fresh titters got in the way. Finally, Elizabeth drew a breath. She bit her lip, looked at Charlie, and spoke. The reason I bring it up, it's something I happened to remember this morning on my way to the bakery. Oh, Charlie felt himself calm, but a drunken feeling washed over him. <laughs> what about it? Your speech at the end. Speech? When you played Joseph, you had a speech about the spirit of Christmas or some hooey like that. Oh, I, I don't remember. Well, I do. Not the words, of course, but the way you said them. Standing in front of our little manger, wearing your cloak and your fake beard. You were all of ten years old, hardly big enough to hold up the staff they gave you. And you said it so well, like you meant it, not a dry eye in the house. Pastor Hayden was bawling his eyes out, said Charlie. Made me want to crack up. But you didn't crack up. You stayed there, and you stole the show. Because you're good. You've always been good. And now you're here. You've made it. For every one of you, there are 10,000 who pack up and go home. And I want to let you know, I'm proud of you. I truly am. Charlie stared at the tabletop. He had no idea what to say. He needed more coffee for one thing. But this wasn't the Elizabeth he remembered. The show-off, the smart Alec, the tomboy who was always just a little taller, a little faster, a little more knowing. He'd never expected to hear something so earnest, not from her. Well, he said, nodding his head, but that was all he could produce. And anyway, Elizabeth added, that pageant was good for both of us. You're still an actor, and I can still make an ass out of myself. Charlie covered his face with his hands, trying to smother his laughter. All this. When he recovered, Elizabeth was looking away, toward the window curtains. Listen, I have something I have to tell you, and I only ask that you hear me out. Charlie stiffened, but he couldn't think of a response, so he waited. I know about Rose. Thank you.
The name shot through him like lightning. Rose, a name he had never heard spoken except from his own lips. The name that had haunted him for months. The name he had tried to forget. A name that now existed only in his mind. He remembered her face, the scent of her perfume, the touch of her fingertips on his skin, her lashes, her one crooked tooth, the flower in her hair. A thousand memories fulminated at once, blasting the air from his lungs. I know you went to that movie to find her, said Elizabeth. And when you didn't see her face on the screen, when you didn't see her name in the credits, that's why you got angry and left. How in the hell? I'll explain, Charlie. I'll explain everything. But we all have secrets. And you should know mine. Elizabeth scratched her cheek. She looked distant, pallid, like she might be sick. When I was gone, all those years, I said I was traveling. Studying abroad, you remember? Of course I remember. You were gone for seven years. Well, that wasn't all of it. In the strictest sense, I was studying, but for a distinct reason. The truth is, I'm an investigator. A what? Like a detective. I... Elizabeth grimaced. I find things out. Charlie shook his head. Liz, what are you even talking about? I know it's hard to believe. Mom and Dad don't know. I couldn't even tell Vicky when I saw her in Paris, but it's true. I help people. Well, usually. What kind of detective? It's a long story, but here's the point. Rose is missing. Her family hasn't seen her in months. No one seems to know where she is, and I think there's been foul play. Charlie flung himself away from the table. His chair toppled, clattering to the floor. He spread his hands wide. He gasped for breath. What kind of crazy hogwash? Hear me out, Elizabeth commanded. Her eyes bore into him. This is all news to me. I didn't come to California looking for trouble. And the fact is, Rose is your affair. Tell me to shut up and I will. But unless you happen to know where she is, and a part of me hopes you do, then Rose has vanished. And there are some people out there who would very much like to find her. Charlie stared at her. Again, a complete reversal. She was a woman he didn't recognize. Neither snippy nor aloof. Charlie had never seen such intensity in her eyes, such gravity of purpose. He wanted to scream, to smash something, to demand why she was playing such a cruel joke. But he could tell. It wasn't a joke. This was real. Everything she was saying was real. Slowly, like a man submerged in water, he reached for his pack of cigarettes. With shaking fingers, he lit the end and puffed. Elizabeth waited, watching him. His mind raced. His body felt heavy and foreign. She broke it off, he muttered. She said she was busy with the movie. So I said I'd wait for her as long as she needed. 
Then she said her family would never understand, so I said we could run away. She said, never mind what she said. I could tell it wasn't her. She was crying when she said it, just crying and crying, like she didn't believe a word she was saying, like she was cutting herself up with a knife she was crying so hard. Elizabeth nodded slowly. Did you love her? Oh, hell, Liz, I don't know. What does that even mean? You saw Mom and Pop. They loved each other, didn't they? And you heard how they bickered, always being so mean to each other. And after you and Vicky left, it only got worse. Those last years, it was awful. You don't even know. He opened the window and flung the cigarette into the morning sunlight. But Rose, she got a hold of me, I'll say that much. And I never hated anything as much as I've hated missing her. Elizabeth rose to her feet. Well, we may be able to do something about it. There's a man, Takata. He's a private investigator. He's the reason I know about any of this. Charlie narrowed his eyes. Come again? Takata's been trying to find her, and he made contact with me. He wants my help. Hold up. Charlie rubbed his chin. What do you mean he made contact with you? Do you know him through all this detective work? You could say that. Oh, could I say that? Is he a policeman? No, I told you. Oh, sure. He's a private investigator. Did he try to sell you a bridge first? Charlie, why am I even listening to this? Do you know how many confidence men are crawling all over this town? Did he have a badge? P.I.s don't carry badges. For heaven's sakes, Liz. For being so smart, you can be a real blockhead. You're taking his word that Rose is missing? That guy could be anyone. He's not anyone. Oh yeah? Then why? Why do you trust him? Because, said Elizabeth stonily, Rose is his cousin. For Maud, the following week was a strange one. I have a few errands to run, said Elizabeth, during their third breakfast in the hotel. But you should go out, see the city. Seems like your cup of tea. Are you sure? Elizabeth folded her newspaper and tossed it on the table. Then she dug out a billfold and handed Maud a bundle of crisp notes. Didn't I promise you a vacation? Go, see the sights, nab some more autographs, knock yourself out. Maud didn't need to be told thrice. She ripped the untouched bathing costume out of her luggage and beelined for the concierge's desk. Maud found an extra seat on a small autobus and headed straight to Santa Monica Beach. The Pacific waves did her good as did the powerful sun. She skipped lunch in favor of a strawberry gelato, and she strolled her way to the pier. But it wasn't like any pier she'd ever seen. A Ferris wheel rose from its planks, along with a massive hippodrome. She wandered among the crowds of couples and families. She passed a long row of stalls and carnival games. When she spotted the carousel, she couldn't help herself. She bought a ticket and mounted one of the carved show horses, savoring the calliope tunes. Three rounds later, 
she'd finally had her fill of bobbing animals, and Maud rejoined the throngs to try her luck at ring toss. By the time she returned, the sky was deep red and ribbed with clouds, and Maud was thoroughly exhausted, not to mention sunburned down to her toes. She met Elizabeth in the hotel restaurant and regaled her with the story of her day. Oh, Maud exclaimed, and this is for you. She plunked a sizable cylinder on the table. The thing was wrapped in paper, which Elizabeth skeptically ripped away. Beneath the shreds was a small vase. Its shape was attractively warped. The glass was iridescent with muted colors, like the sheen of gasoline in a puddle of water. Carnival glass, Elizabeth said, appraising the vase. And how lovely. Where do you find it? I won it, Maud declared. And two more, too. Elizabeth grinned. It was a curious expression, both warm and preoccupied. Her plate was ringed with handwritten notes. But Maud resisted the urge to ask. In all this time assisting Elizabeth, Maud couldn't remember taking such leave of herself. There were lulls, of course, and exotic travels to boot. But she had never had a whole city to explore, all on her own. The next day, she promised herself, would be even better. And it was. Maud booked an equestrian tour with the hotel. The carousel had reminded her how much she'd enjoyed riding a real horse, however untrained she was, and the autobus dropped her off at the edge of Bronson Canyon. Several other tourists were already gathered there, along with a small herd of ponies. Their guide was a mustached cowboy named Mr. Gates, and he helped them into their saddles. They trotted up the trail, into the crusty yellow hills. Mr. Gates rattled off the names of a dozen movies, pointing to one bush or another, explaining how different scenes had been filmed there. Maud devoured every word. Say, said Maud, an hour into their journey. Need some water? Offered Mr. Gates, pulling his horse abreast. Gets mighty hot out here. Well, sure, thank you, but... I was wondering, what's whole? You mean the caves? There are plenty of them around these parts. No, I mean H-O-L, the sign on the ridge over there. Maud pointed at the colossal white letters rising over the dust and scrub. It must be 50 feet tall. Mr. Gates pushed back his Stetson and grimaced. Ah, that there's nothing more than an advertisement. Really? What is it for? Real estate. Some new development they're building down yonder. And it's called Hole? No, it ain't finished yet. When it's done, it'll take up the whole hillside. Hollywood land. You won't be able to stand ten miles down the valley without spotting it. He spat in the dust. Damn garish if you ask me. Again, Maud returned to the hotel for dinner and stories. 
Again, Elizabeth half-listened. Her eyelids drooped over her entree and ever-growing stacks of papers. She leaned her face into her wrist and tried to repress her yawns. But Maud yammered on. She just had to tell someone. And so went the routine for four more days. Maud was whisked to one location or another. A tour guide explained its significance, and she was back at the Biltmore in time for supper. She took a bus ride along Sunset Boulevard to gaze at the gated mansions. She browsed prehistoric skeletons at the Natural History Museum, and in Little Tokyo, not far from Takata's office, she tried something called sushi, struggling to pluck up the packages of rice and raw fish with a pair of chopsticks. The San Fernando Valley so enchanted her, Maud hardly noticed the transformation of her hotel room. "'Morning, Maud,' said Elizabeth, as her assistant stirred from a deep sleep. Maud rubbed her eyes, stretched her sun-scorched arms, and looked around. "'Oh, my goodness!' was all she could say. The Biltmore was among the most talked-about hotels in the country, yet the spotless accommodations they had started to inhabit a week ago now looked more like an abandoned storeroom. The desk was covered with a cloth sheet, as well as greasy tools and parts. A bundle, wrapped in thick fabric, stood squarely in the middle. Large scrolls had been unrolled on the floor. Maud didn't know much about blueprints, but chalky blue backgrounds were a dead giveaway. The biggest surprise was a movie projector, an ungainly hunk of machinery mounted on one of the two dressers. Two sizable reels extended from the body, ready to roll. We're just about set, said Elizabeth. Ready to come back to work? I think so, said Maud. That is, what are we doing? We are going to visit a movie studio, declared Elizabeth. That is, I'm going to visit it, but you're the one who's going to leave. Maud took a moment to process this statement. When it still didn't make any sense, she said, Oh, well, when? Tomorrow. Just be ready. Get plenty of shut-eye and I'll explain the whole thing tomorrow. The rest of the day passed without incident. In fact, Maud did very little at all. Elizabeth had that look about her, the anxious excitement she always expressed on the eve of a major event. Maud had nearly forgotten about the strange film, the missing girls, the fraternal concern. She had fallen under the spell of California, the glow of its sunshine, the sway of its palm trees, the dreamy spirit of its people. It seemed so absurd now that anything could happen in such a carefree climate. Here, movie stars could be spotted in any restaurant. All anyone could talk about was how to tell stories and pictures so the whole world could enjoy them. She had never hesitated to follow Elizabeth into the fray, but couldn't there be just one place in the world where the uncanny didn't lurk? Couldn't one place stay too perfect to taint?
You'll like Kyoko, said Takada, pushing back a weathered gate. But let me do the talking. Elizabeth raised an eyebrow. Do I really talk that much? Sure you do, said Takada. But that's what I like about you. Takada tossed an expended cigarette into the dirt. The yard was a mess. Mottled grass and bald patches of hard soil, overlaid with every kind of mechanical part. Old industrial spools served as tables, the tops cluttered with pipes, cables, gears, gauges, valves, and hand wheels. In an adjacent workshop, some kind of saw was whirring. The blade screamed as it sank into metal. Elizabeth sidestepped scattered nails, wondering whether visiting this Kyoko fellow was worth a lifetime of lockjaw. Takada had nearly reached the open garage door when he called, Kyoko! The electrical saw stopped, replaced by an eerie quiet. A figure stepped out of the building, small and pudgy, wearing a dust-matted leather apron and a welding mask over the face. The figure responded, not in English, but in rapid-fire Japanese. The voice was muffled beneath the veritable helmet. Takada chuckled, a curt little sound that Elizabeth hadn't heard before. He responded, also in Japanese, and all Elizabeth understood was her own name. Ah, said the figure, who flipped back the welding mask and removed it. To Elizabeth's surprise, the face wasn't a wrinkled man as she'd imagined, but a cherubic young woman. She beamed, bowing her head. Pleased to meet you. Crown, meet Kyoko, the only broad I know tougher than you. Well, said Elizabeth, I won't arm wrestle you for the title. The workshop was a natural extension of the yard, a jumble of benches and tools and dissected machinery. Kyoko hunkered into a stool and raised a bottle of Coca-Cola. She sucked through a paper straw, studying her company. Okay, she said, swallowing her swig like a handful of bolts. What you want? Takada cleared his throat. What followed was an unbroken oratory, spoken in effortless Japanese. Years had passed since Elizabeth had visited Japan, and she suddenly missed the quick, consonantal language. She yearned for those dense cities, those rocky coasts, the Shinto monuments rising out of fog-cloaked mountains. All at once, Takada finished his explanation— and Kyoko sipped again from her coke. Then she shrugged. Okay. Elizabeth blinked. Okay. Kyoko rolled her eyes dramatically. She slammed the bottle back on the bench. Too easy, she exclaimed. Takada, why you no bring me something more hard? Takada smirked. Thanks, Kyoko. I owe you one. You owe me more than that, Kyoko called after him but the detective had already tipped his hat and ambled out of the workshop. Elizabeth jogged after him, stumbling over a castaway pallet. So, wait, that's it? That's it, said Takada, halfway across the yard. 
She's just going to make one for us, just like that? Takada stopped at the door. He leaned against the jam. I told you you'd like her. Somehow I assumed, said Elizabeth, that a time bomb would take more, well, time. Live and learn. I'm just impressed is all. Takada grimaced at this, as if not sure what else to say. Let me get you a cab. No, said Elizabeth. I should enjoy the weather while I have it. A walk would do me good. Well, how about that? I was going for a ramble myself. Elizabeth shuffled her feet. Give me the penny tour? Takada looked both ways, as if waiting for a cop to ask what the two of them were doing on the same street corner. But there was no cop, just a long, meandering alleyway and the disordered backs of buildings. Why not? said Takada. They walked. Little Tokyo unfolded before them, the sun-drenched storefronts and busy sidewalks. Trucks were loaded and unloaded. Children scampered around them. They passed one vegetable market, then another. The baskets overflowed with greens, bulbs, and roots. Nearly everyone they saw was dressed in familiar vestments, the same suits and dresses Elizabeth would see on Pittsburgh boulevards. Yet the signage took her back, the sweeping strokes of kanji. She savored the aromas of soy and ginger, miso and sesame, things she would never smell back home. Everywhere she felt hints of the country she had so briefly explored. So why a detective? said Elizabeth. I'm nosy, said Takada, and the senses wouldn't take me. Elizabeth stopped. Her head hung sideways. Takada licked his lips. My father's a tailor. A damn good one. Well, that explains the threads. I'll send him your compliments. He's a nice guy. A humble guy. He's classic old country. You can just picture him pushing a plow through a rice paddy. But me... I'm American. I'm not nice, and I'm not humble. I watch my back, and I watch his back, too. All I've got in this crummy town is my family, and my neighborhood, and the people who look and talk like me. And if one of them gets pushed around, I want to find out who did it, and I'll be damned if I don't push back. I see, said Elizabeth. But what about all that talk about chasing cheaters and runaways? Takata sneered. Everybody's got to make a living. Elizabeth used a hand to shield her eyes. The sun was blazing now, and everyone on the street was bathed in harsh light. Once we have the evidence, and once people see it, they'll have to start an investigation. There'll be too many questions. If there's evidence, Takada muttered. However this pans out, Copeland Studios will have a lot of explaining to do. They sure will. Elizabeth lowered her eyes. I'm sure you've considered. Rose might. That is, of course I have, Takata snapped. But I'm not sitting on my hands. I'm going to find out what happened, one way or another. You will, said Elizabeth. We will. Elizabeth touched his forearm. She meant to comfort him, but her hand lingered. 
The material of his suit was alarmingly smooth, and his bicep was sturdy beneath it. Warmth washed over her. If he had moved away, the sensation would have passed, but his eyes met hers, severe and unwavering. Takata reached across his chest, grasped her fingers, and pulled them away from his sleeve. The movement was gentle, as if he were carrying a spider at the end of its silk thread. Rest up, Crown, said Takata, and he disappeared into the marketplace. You've been listening to The Girl in the Picture, Episode 3, written and performed by Robert Eisenberg. The Adventures of Elizabeth Crown are produced by Airmail Media in Providence, Rhode Island. Music provided and licensed by Audioblocks.com. For more information about the exciting world of Uncanology, visit ElizabethCrown.net. Dot net.